You're listening to Grass Matters podcast brought to you by Great Southern. I'm your host, Andrea Crothers. Our guest today is Jacinta Geddes. She's the Food Service General Manager at Andrew's Meat, which is the supplier to thousands of restaurants, hotels and resorts, as well as catering to nursing homes, airlines and sporting venues. But before that, Jacinta was on the other side as a chef, where she worked under one of Australia's most influential chefs, Neil Perry. This is a conversation about the food service industry, its future post-pandemic, and what it means for grass-fed meat. Jacinta, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. Jacinta, you've had such an incredible career, but most people wouldn't know you actually dropped out of school at age 14 to go pursue it. When did you first realise you wanted to be a chef? I think I'd always, because mum and dad had, my mum and mother and father were in business and they always had, they had hairdressing salons, so I was always working, like big, big um, work ethic. It was really strong in the family, I worked in the family businesses. Um, so I think I was always thinking from a very, very young age, my parents had businesses since I was born. So always growing up in that sort of environment, I've always thought, what will I do? What will I do? So I think this came probably a little bit earlier than me, than maybe most, but I was constantly thinking about what sort of career I'd want. And I saw, I was watching a program, had nothing about cooking. Obviously, there's TV shows aplenty now. And it was just a movie. And the the son in the movie, who was like a, I don't know, an ad, a young adult, was a chef. And he was cutting really fast on a chopping board. So he was just like cutting really quickly. And I went, oh, when I, I want to do, I want to cut really quickly. And I thought, I think I'll be a chef, right? So it's a bit obscure. Um, but then from that movie, I started going, a chef, they cut really quickly. I want to cut really quickly. I really <laughs> cut really quickly. That was it. I thought, how impressive. That was what a 10-year-old gets impressed by, like really fast cutting. We ate out a lot of good restaurants, a lot of good restaurants, a lot of normal restaurants, a lot of family restaurants. So that was very common too. So I thought, wow, chefs are in the back. Like they're, they're, they're in there. They're a secret society that I never got to see. There weren't very open kitchens back then. And then you took that sort of next step, bluffing your way into getting those internships so you could sort of be part of that secret society. <laughs> when I was in um, year seven, when you used to go for work experience in the front office, there used to be these things for year 10 students where they would go and collect. You would go and get just empty forms and they would be work experience forms. I grabbed a bunch of those forms. And I went, I've always thought of being a chef. I think I really want to do it. Well, I've got school holidays, um, you know, however many, three times, three, four times a year. So I thought every time I'm on school holidays, I'll just fill out these forms. And before the school holidays, I'll just pretend I'm in year 10 and see if I can do a week's work experience in all these different restaurants. So I worked in a whole bunch of different restaurants um, when I was in year seven, when I was in year eight. I just kept, obviously, I had to work in different ones because they, you know, you can't keep going back and saying you're in year 10 again the next year. So by the time I got to leaving school, um, I, was, I was pretty, pretty ready. Mum got me a job and that restaurant was the first place that I did my f- um, first year of being a chef. And I stayed there for about a year and a half and um, I loved it. We, we did like crazy hours, like, you know, 70, 80, I think it was, so 75-hour weeks was sort of probably the longest that I worked. So you know those people that just sort of stay with you? Um, and that was sort of – that was a restaurant. There was a beautiful chef who's um, passed away uh, now called Tom, Tom Delahunty, and he told me, you're a pretty amazing kid and there are some better restaurants than the ones that we're working at. Now, I learned a lot there, 
but I didn't obviously, you know, a chef like Tom telling me that there was, you know, a whole other world out there. Um, so he wrote down on a piece of paper in the kitchen one night, like a whole bunch of restaurants. So I just searched for them and that's how I um, found out about Rockpool. So I went down for um, second year of my apprenticeship and got a job um, at Rockpool with um, Neil Perry. He was sort of still uh, in the restaurant, still in the um, kitchens back then. So it was just amazing. He's obviously someone who needs no introduction. What was it like, though, just being able to work alongside him? You say it was amazing. Describe some of those days for me. I think with Neil, um, what I remember the most, and even back then, and I was was, um, 15, not 15, maybe I just turned 16, what I was all struck by was the organisation and I'm not talking about organisation as in recipe cards, clarity, but it was about the culture. You, you felt everybody was working at their best. Everybody was achieving. You were part of, you worked individually, you worked in a team, but you were a part of this really big cog that put out this amazing product. I've never worked with um, product as, as good. I mean, you were, you were at the, the pinnacle, at the top end of sort of the industry. And I didn't quite fully understand it when I first started. I just remember going in there and going, wow, what is this place? And he would bring in like lamb. Like he's got this beautiful, if you go to Rockpool now, he's got this beautiful, um, you know, dry aging cabinet. He's got his own butcher and a whole department. Back then we didn't have any of that. But as apprentices, he would bring in whole carcasses of lamb. Now lamb is a really... They're only about one point. Uh, they would have been about 12 kilo lamb. But what you do is you would bone them out every day uh, before service. And I said to Neil, why don't you just buy the lamb in like the pieces that you want? Because you'd be using on the dish, there'd be rumps and you'd have to use different things. And then there's a whole bunch of the lamb, like the lamb shoulders, which are an amazing cut, which obviously for a three hat restaurant, you're not going to put lamb shoulder on the menu. So that went to staff. It's a pretty good staff meal. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff, Mel. It depends on, on what the chef did with it. But, yeah, you'd have all this amazing produce. But boning out these lambs, why did he do it? He did it not for the price, not for anything else, but to make sure that skill set was high. He had wine tastings. So you, chefs would go upstairs and we would do, we would do wine tastings. The um, sommelier would come in and we would, we would taste wines on a regular basis. There were oil tastings. We'd have extra virgin olive oils and we'd get a deep understanding about the difference between the two, what, what you would balance with one, why you would use one over another. Um, that deep understanding of product was really, like for me, was born there. So, Jacinta, you spent around a decade as a chef. Then you went to the other side of things uh, with Andrew's Meat where you've been there for about 18 years now and food service general manager since 2015. <laughs> We obviously know Andrew's Meat has the export yeah. side, the ready-cooked meal side, and then the food service. For those that don't know about mm. that sort of pillar, can you give us a bit of an overview? So food service is the largest um, part of the business. It's probably easier to talk in. Um, it's probably easier to talk just in um, numbers of orders. So you'd have like um, we might have sort of like on a, this is a slow day. We'd have about seven hundred and eighty orders. On a busy day, we would have um, just to a bit over a thousand. That's that. Well, thousand one hundred, thousand fifty would be a, a normal healthy day during COVID. Obviously, it was a more, a lot more. Where does Great Southern uh, and grass-fed brands fit into um, Andrew's Meats Food Service? It's pretty exciting, to be honest. So, with what 
Meat and Livestock Australia has done with MLA and what they've done with that whole program, the technology and the grading that's gone into beef, has done great things for pasture and grain-fed. But our country is fortunate enough to have some regions that have really, really great pastures. Seeing products like the Great Southern Program in all of the products, like Little Joe in particular, which is just the newest um, cab off the rank, which is a Marble Score 4, is unheard of. It's unheard of to have seen a pasture fed for, let's say, even as little as like eight years ago. Over the years, every single year that these programs, that's Pinnacle, Little Joe, uh, the uh, Great Southern and the Red Gum, and you're seeing higher and higher marble scores every single year. Every year, that program, that family of farmers that they've got, just keep breeding better and better and better product. And it is, it's, it's, I, I just, I, I get really excited when I talk about it because there's, there's nothing like it. Now, I saw Little Joe marble score. Well, we, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been in the Little Joe brand because it was too marble, but it marble scored over a nine. When you see marble score sixes and marble score nines coming out of a pasture-fed program that you once thought couldn't marble or you'd lucky if you got marble score one or two, that's an exciting thing. So restaurants are now getting used to um, products like Pinnacle where pasture-fed is averaging two. They're used to that now. The cattle is just getting better and better and better. So where it fits in with us is being able to have an offering like that, that nobody can come close to. There might be an, a product here and there that um, also has marble score twos or marble score fours, but not this large, not with this much um, backing behind it. I mean, these guys, so the JBS um, team, the Southern team that work, work uh, on this and develop this program actually have, they call it a caravan of love. I always like to share this story. Caravan of love, and it actually goes out and it's got a little, it's got a little um, uh, bench. It's a caravan. It's got a bench in it. It's got a cool room in the back of it, and it's got a, um, uh, what do you call it, a bandsaw. So it travels around and it goes to the farmers that are in this program, in the Great Southern Program, and it teaches them, and it'll do lamb, and it'll do, and they go out to the lamb farmers and the beef farmers, and they actually show them one thing that this industry has never had is this part, and it it might be a bit lost on sort of chefs probably listening, um, but as an industry, this part in particular is is huge for me because farmers never understood. So you get a cattle grid, and you say, hey your product rated this, your product graded this, and then here's your money for it. So the more your product is marbled or the more your product is, you know, got the right colour or fat depth, all these things that they grade against, um, you get more money for it. So farmers would send in their cattle, you know, they're alive and heading in, and then they'd say, here, this is the money that you got for it. And they're going, oh, I don't know, for the person that's paying me is the person that's telling me what it's worth. So... What the caravan, the Great Southern Caravan comes out and does is it actually teaches the farmers what happens afterwards. Most farmers don't know, okay, they know their cattle gets graded, but they don't understand the grading process. So these guys invested, and it's a bit of investment, 
of going out teaching these farmers exactly what happens on the other side. Investing back into the land, investing back into the farmers is what's created this great southern. It's what creates this high marbled product all the time. They teach the farmers what they're looking for. So now farmers can actually say, I'm going to sell graze. What's it like if I sell graze like this? And then they get the grids back and they go, oh, this. And, they, and we're, working with the, we're working with the farmers and to get a better understanding. And if those farmers are coming up with the ideas as to how, marble, how their product's going to marble better, it just escalated really, really quickly. You don't get escalation like that with marble score fours and this crazy marble score eights and nines that you, that you every now and again throw off without talking to farmers and getting their buy-in and, and with a program like this. That, that's the exciting part about it. So what sort of cuts are you seeing trend right now? Trending cuts right now, it's, um, it's similar to pre-COVID, but post-COVID, um, I'm surprised actually at what we're seeing. So thick skirt, huge. Not a lot of it. A lot of people, for any chefs listening, there's not a lot of this stuff. So it's a very small amount on a cow, but thick skirt, very popular. Um, rump cap, so that's the, the cap of the rump. Um, and we there's another cut that we get off it. So if we portion the rump cap, um, we get top sirloins. And when you look at it, a lot of chefs think that the top sirloin is actually a sirloin steak. It looks very, very similar when it's cut to a sirloin steak, um, but it's not. It's a rump, a rump cap, huge amount of flavour. Um, when you get it out of the pinnacle, it's, it's got a lot of marbling. It's, it's very, very tasty. So rump cap, full of flavour. Then you've got bone-in lamb shoulders, really popular at the moment. The great southern ones, there's a lot of share. Big, big thing about food right now is the grazing experience. There's not a lot of, still a little bit of degustation, but not a lot of degustation. It's all casual dining. There's a big push um, about sort of home, home dining, like um, mum and dad family sort of dining experience in the restaurant. So a lot of shared things like T-bone steak, like bestecker, one kilo T-bone besteckers are hugely popular. Um, Little Joe and Pinnacle are definitely the... Uh, the strong suits for that, a lot of that being sold. Burgers are trending, crazily trending. Uh, pinnacle tomahawks, so that's with a really long sort of bone. Those are huge. Um, pinnacle's beautiful in a tomahawk because you get, you don't get a lot of um, channel fat because pasture fed doesn't really have that channel fat, whereas if you get wagyu, you get a bit of a chunky channel fat in it. But um, tomahawks are quite good in the pinnacle and really nice marbling in that marble score too. OP ribs and ribeye cutlets, right now, short supply, short, short supply. OP ribs and ribeye cutlets are very popular, but there's not a lot of them. Red gum is, a lot of people like red gum because it's a really narrow eye, really small, narrow eye, which means you can get these beautiful, thick steaks out of it. When you go to the pinnacle, it's a little bit wider. So you need to get sort of bigger cuts out of it. So if red gum is that sort of product that you can get portion controlled at, you know, 300, 350, you know, that sort of size, whereas pinnacle sort of you want to get that sort of 550 uh, and up and you get that really beautiful marbled product. So ribeye cutlets um, are very popular, um, but you, you don't want to be getting those pinnacle 
the, that pinnacle product that is, um, you know, is really small. You really want to try to aim for those bigger sizes, which is why um, those tomahawks are so popular because they'll be like one kilo. Um, you'll cut the tomahawks into a nice big cutlet and you'll get quite a big portion out of it. But the, the big overarching trending out of all of those cuts is this whole grazing experience. We're seeing a lot of that at the moment. Why do you think that is? Because I know that, like, for example, the weddings I've been to in the past few years, there's been that noticeable shift from you don't just get the alternate drop. There's a much more a share platter down the middle of the table sort of type thing. What do you think it is that's sort of driving people to sort of eat in that way? It's been a, it, it has been it has been around for a little while, even pre. I, I keep saying like you know BC before COVID. So pre COVID, this was around. It was in pubs. It was in restaurants. Um, it was it was in high end steak restaurants. Like they've like good good steak restaurants that had that type of thing. So that was there mainly because those really big muscles um, in your T bones and stuff look fantastic. They just really really do look great. So that's before COVID, that would have been a big, big, strong suit. It's great meat. You really want to get a nice, big, thick steak, and that's how that works. So sharing is the only way you can do it. Now, I think more restaurants are doing this sort of grazing experience probably because it's there's a lot of families coming. They can also do it a little bit cheaper, so your price per head is a little bit cheaper. Um, so you might have you might get one big bistecker. Now on COVID. Obviously, the last quarter of the year is usually the most important for food service before you get that January, February time when business just falls off a cliff. How's it looking this year as we start to emerge from that COVID lockdown? If you had have asked me, if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said I don't think we're going to get a January drop off like we normally do, like that cliff that you're talking about, um, because I was thinking everything's going to be good, solid business. So we're, we're trading quite well now. Business is good. I mean, nothing's, nothing's great because um, businesses, we're all, we're all still building out of it. We're all still, still struggling a bit. But it's better than it has been this year. There's a little, little restaurant, beautiful little restaurant um, in Surrey Hills called Tequila Mockingbird. They've just opened another restaurant called Esteban just recently. They had on – they – did online. They adapted that online sort of model really, really quickly. They're very, Surrey Hills, they're in a really, um, they got a lot of local community support. So we went out and they just nailed that local community and a lot of the local community always ate there. So they just, you know, in lockdown, they just wanted really great food. So they kept ordering. He kept his staff and he really did high-end meals. Now, this chef, John Free, he's going to go for he, – he's going to try to go for three hats, I think, with Esteban. That's the quality of food that's coming out. So it's casual dining, but it's a, it's a really, really um, good chef. So he did as much business when um, during COVID as, as when they were open. What they're doing now, they've almost um, doubled – their revenue because when COVID came back, it's this very small kitchen back there. If you've ever, it's an open kitchen. If you ever walk down, a beautiful place. I recommend it to anybody. Um, but when you walk past there, it's quite a small kitchen. I said, "How the hell are you doing? You know, all your meals out, like your takeaway meals and stuff like that, as well as you know, doing your other stuff." I understood when they were just doing takeaway. I said, "What are you going to do?" He said, "No, we're going to keep it on. We're going to we're going to do all of it." So they do, a lot of restaurants have adopted that, you know, you can only be in for two hours. 
you know, that seating um, thing. And that's that's healthy. That's good for to get these restaurants up and running. So any any customer that's a bit annoyed with that, I get it. But we've got to support these guys in doing those um, two-hour turnarounds and stuff like that because no one's going to make any money this year. That two-hour turnaround doesn't bother me one bit because lots of places in Melbourne already did that and asked if, you know, you booked in your time. Plus also, I actually hope it might make people more polite now and actually turn up to their reservation on time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, the, and the, yeah, the cancellation fee and stuff like that, I don't think people really understand how difficult it is to run a kitchen, run a restaurant. It is, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Chefs and restaurateurs and publicans and farmers, I've never seen a more passionate group of people that will be quite happy or let's say no no one's happy to trade but farmers for instance I mean when they're going through drought I mean they'll go through a year and not make any money you know we we just got you know restaurants here that just went through a pandemic not making any money and what was their first thought all they thought about was their staff not one not one of those people talked to me about revenue how do you think consumer behaviour has evolved over that time? I mean, I know there's a lot more of choosing to eat nicer things when at home rather than, you know, just a uh, brown paper bag delivery of something not uh, so fancy. <laughs> what happens when you force everybody to stay home, the entire country, people start eating out and they, they miss out on that eating out experience. So then they start going to the supermarkets and the offering isn't quite there because there's that cost of it. And they're going, how do I get that? from that restaurant or they have takeaway and they go, how come the takeaway meat that I get from there tastes so much tender and I can't get it? How do I get that? And there's, and then these, these, uh, these businesses like the Netus that are emerging. So I don't think we would have had this sort of strong presence in all this high end. I mean, like think of somebody paying $5,000. Some of his orders are $5,000 for one customer, for one order. So someone is putting $5,000 worth of meat and seafood and caviar and abalone. Who knows what he's getting, but it's high end. He could have put some wine in there as well because I think he does wine and cheese. I mean, maybe he had a fun, maybe he had a dinner party. But that's a lot of product that you wouldn't expect would come out, come from a retail customer. Like go to Woolies and go chuck $5,000 worth of you know, product in your trolley. That's a couple of trolleys worth. You know, he probably got... He probably got a small 20 kilo, maybe two 20 kilo boxes because it was all high end. So, I mean, so, I mean, that's probably unusual. He, he, yes, um, that's the sort of people that are buying on that platform. And that probably wouldn't be every single, you know, order that that particular client or that group of clients buy. But that quality, that high end experience is there. And I don't think that was very strong before. I was at a friend's place and I, I, I think I got Uber Eats or something like that. And I think there were like most of the businesses were, you know, pizza places and, you know, a, a, and some fast food places and a, and a couple of other random things. You're not seeing that even when you look on those types of businesses anymore. You know, even their offerings, I mean, you, you, you're seeing sort of like poke bowls and, you know, really like fresh, fresh food offerings in, in, even in those sort of platforms that aren't the most popular for these types of restaurants, um, but you're, you're seeing a, even a different sort of, you know, quality uh, even, even on those sort of platforms, which are, uh, from my understanding, quite expensive to sort of be a part of. Jacinta, 
As someone who works in food service as a supplier, where do you see the biggest opportunities for new client acquisition then, particularly the grass-fed space? It's huge. It's huge. The space, pasture-fed product is sought after for a load of different reasons. You're seeing places that I wouldn't see pasture-fed traditionally, corporate caterers. So a lot of those large caterers, now they're the ones that I talked about that did sort of, they could do stadium catering or large venue catering and they would do um, places like uh, they'll look after sort of uh, cafes and, you know, Google, you know, um, lunchrooms and things like that. So you'll see, uh, and plus uh, some hotels and things like that, but you'll, you'll see you'll, uh, it's, it's being asked for in that space. So that means that the consumers, of, the, of all those restaurants are saying, we want to see pasture fed. What's, what's your um, environmentally friendly offering or what's your, um, you know, fresh meat offering? Where's your pasture fed? So you don't, you get asked for pasture fed always. We get asked for pasture and grain. We don't, we don't put one over the other. But the trend for it, the thirst for it is, is strong, heavy and healthy. Do you, do, you, do you have a rough guess domestically, Hal? much it can grow? No, domestically, no, I wouldn't say, no, I wouldn't know exactly domestically how far it can grow, but I know the first for it overseas, um, you know, they could probably, uh, at a guess, I think we could, we could double the, they could double the production and still sell it all. So the, the first overseas, I mean, overseas you're looking at um, fast food chains, this is in the States and this is overseas. Fast food chains that will only offer a pasture-fed option. Do you think it'll get to the point where, like, you're almost scowled at if you get a cage egg? It'd be an absolute shame if that, were, if, if that did happen. And the truth is pasture isn't better than grain-fed and grain-fed isn't better than pasture-fed. They're just, they're just different. If you're going to have only one item on your menu, I will say they're going to choose grass-fed as a steak line, most probably, maybe a Wagyu line. If they're going to put product on and they had two steak lines, they're going to put a Tajima Wagyu and they're going to put a pasture-fed, um, you know, Pinnacle or Little Joe or something like that on. And, and they're, going to, they're going to have two steaks. They'll, they'll very rarely ever take grass off. If I took two Angus cattle and I put – one on the feedlot through the so they so pasture fed and then it goes into the feedlot for a short period of time, and I had a marble score two pasture fed if I had a marble score two grain fed beef and I had a pasture fed two um, pinnacle beef which is the pasture fed beef, and I tasted them side by side. I'm going to get in the pasture fed. I'll explain it this way. Let's call it Grange Grange Black Angus because that's what I produce, which is grain-fed that's Marble Score 2, and let's put it up against a pinnacle beef Marble Score 2. Every single thing about the cattle is identical. British bread, British bread, um, same age, same everything. What I'd feel in the Black Angus um, pinnacle is the marbling would be pronounced, it'd be evenly distributed, and it'll produce a well-developed buttery flavour with a light beefy overtone. It'll be quite soft. It'll be smooth. It'll be earthy in flavour. Pasture-fed, well-developed marbling. So one's going to be pronounced evenly distributed. You're going to have really good 
marbling in the pasture because they're both marble score two, but it's going to leave, when you eat it, it's going to leave a crisp, clean pasture flavor on the palate. It's a crisp flavor, whereas the other one's a smooth, more nutty flavor. The flavor profile when you're talking to chef, this is what chefs are interested in. How does the, what's the mouthfeel? What's the flavor? Both of these are just as tender as each other. So the apple analogy, which is always what I sort of like to finish off, is I you know, just go pasture-fed and grain-fed. It's like red apples and green apples. Which apple's better, a red one or a green one? There's no, diff- there's no one's better than the other. No one would say one is better. Someone might say, I prefer red. I like the flavor of red. It's got a different flavor. I like the flavor of a green. It's got a different flavor. That's the way we need to look at grass. Like beef is, they're both beef, they're both apples. One's green, one's red. One day you might prefer this, one day you might prefer the other. Absolutely. And they've both got their place. And I'm telling you, in our country, we must, as an industry, support both brands. From watching someone start cutting to then deciding to go to your own traineeship and working with Neil Perry before doing Andrew's Meat for almost two decades, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned about the food service sector over that time? So what I instantly saw just then when you asked me the question was I immediately went to people. But I went to my own staff, my own people, Um, I went to um, chefs and businesses that I worked in and I just thought the big thing is to be humbled by, you know, people that are sort of leading in front of you. So I know it wasn't, it's not directly related to food service, but, you know, it's it's the people that you help, those stories about people that, um, customers that you've helped, you can share their information. You're fortunate enough to um, be in a position where um, I have some say in, what we talk about, what we push, sales guys, hey, let's share these stories. Um, production team, let's, you know, direction on what we're going to do now. What products will we bring in? Um, what's important? You know, farming stories where you're, you're chatting to these um, people and you're seeing, um, you know, what, what they're dealing with. Those are the things that really, um, really sort of get to me. I think that's probably true of most industries too. It's all about those relationships. But before I do let you go, I do need to know, did you ever manage to get to cut as fast as the person you were watching as an 11-year-old girl? Yes, because he was an actor. Oh, I cut him faster than him. <laughs> Good. Right. And finally, um, ask this of everyone, and I think this will be most interesting coming from yourself given your background. Last Supper, what would you choose? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this one and I forgot to think about it. Last Supper, wow. Okay, I, I think this is a pretty normal one, but I think a it would be very close, but those I love a cube roll. I love a scotch fillet. So every time I walk downstairs and I see those big tomahawks, those big pinnacle tomahawks, I do – I do, I do love the look of them. I love the look of them. I love all that intercostal that runs up the side of them. So it'd be a big meal. I'd hopefully share it um, with a bunch of people. But, yeah, big tomahawk. I, I love a cube roll. So whether it's the scotch fillet, whether it's the tomahawk, but that intercostal, all that sort of stuff would definitely – roasted waggy fat potatoes. So we do this like waggy fat. And I know duck fat's always been popular, but 
we do this wagyu fat and we render it down and it's so clean and crisp so it'd be like wagyu fat potatoes with like rosemary sprinkled on them yeah sounds good i hope i'm invited jacinta it's been really lovely chatting to you thank you so much thank you you too